Well, okay. My name is Steve, and um, what do we call me? I'm one of the congregants. How about that? That's, that's me. I'm one of you people. Well, today, in our third week of, fourth week of Advent, uh, we are going to be considering the story of Jesus' announcement to, the birth of Jesus' announcement to the shepherds in the field. So if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. If you would like a Bible, you don't have one. I know we've got people who will get you one if you will only make yourself known. So Luke, chapter 2. Starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them, told told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the occasion to stop for a few moments to consider these magnificent things. Now, you know that um, within our minds are a, a million things clamoring for our attention, but we pray that you would grant us the attention by your Spirit uh, to these words, to be awakened by them, to, to see their radiance, and to see through them into the heart of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born. So grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, that we may believe and walk in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Okay, we all know, in general, societally speaking, that there are different levels of dignity that are ascribed to different kinds of people. And... In our relational economy, the expectation is that one person of a particular kind of dignity will meet another person of a particular kind of dignity, and there will be equity between the two. Here's what I mean. When the President of the United States travels to another country, he is the most important person in our country, at least in terms of power. 
it is expected that he will be met and received by somebody of commensurate dignity in the other nation, a king, a prime minister, a queen, something like that. Um, he's usually received by that kind of person. Now, if a CEO wants to visit another company, that other company will probably um, send their CEO to meet them, to commensurate level of dignity. If I show up at my friend's house, it's no big deal because we have commensurate levels of dignity. But think of what would happen if that balance is thrown off. Think of what would happen, for example, if um, I'm expecting my friend to come over, I hear a knock at the door, I open the door, and there's the president of the United States. I would be shocked, I would be a little dismayed because um, I'm not expecting you. We have different levels of dignity. The president doesn't just show up to somebody's house. I would be less surprised and less shocked if he said, we're here to put you in federal prison, <laughs> than if he said, I was just driving by. <laughs> Wanted to stop in, have some coffee, play some Parcheesi. That would, that would shock me more than the other thing. Why? Because the president doesn't do that. And we have such different levels of dignity in our society. And when those two levels don't meet and when they're incongruent, it, um, it's a strange thing. It's a shocking thing. When, he go, when the president goes to another country, he's even called a dignitary. When I go to another country, I'm just called a tourist. And so there is a different level of dignity. So take all this and multiply it by a factor of infinity and... Um, and we have the Christmas story. We have, uh, last week we heard about the birth of Christ, or two weeks ago with Mike, he told us about Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus. And into this world came the immensity of Almighty God, and it broke in as a child. And this name, his name, was to be Jesus Christ, the Savior of his people. Now John tells us, the Apostle John tells us, that before all this happened, he was, Jesus was, in the beginning with the Word, or he was the Word, and he was in the beginning with God, which is to say, he is infinite, he is eternal, he has always been there, always been present, equal with God in dignity. In addition to that, um, he is the one, it says, that created everything. This little child created everything, eons before, he let his creative rapture overflow into mountains and rivers and trees and forests and beavers and kingfishers and you and me. This is the one who created all the world here in this little manger. And in addition to that, and as we see in the book of Revelation, it is Christ who will reign over God's everlasting kingdom. He will be the one on, whom the gov on whose shoulders the government will sit and he will make righteousness and equity and peace go throughout all the land for all eternity. This is the person we're talking about. Now, whatever scales we have constructed in our society to measure dignity, when you put Jesus Christ on that scale, it overheats and breaks apart. It cannot be measured. Infinite dignity. Now, we're all humble enough to admit that, I'm sure, but let's just say this dignitary with an infinite amount of dignity comes to earth. Who should we expect to receive him? Right? I mean, if, if the president of the United States goes to another country, commensurate dignity. Somebody needs to receive him. But 
But granted that there's nobody with infinite amount of dignity that can receive him, who's the one who has, say, the most dignity? Who's the one who's, who's closest? I mean, it, you know, the scale is way up there. Who's the one that's the closest? Who's the emperor that's gained the most amount of land, who has the biggest kingdom, Who's the, who's the religious person, the high, maybe the chief priest, the high priest, maybe it's that guy. Who is the one who has the most dignity and therefore can be received? Who is worthy to receive the Ancient of Days? Almighty God in human flesh, the son of Abraham, the inheritor of the throne of David. Well, we see in the story that we just read that it wasn't an emperor, it wasn't a king, to whom God sent messengers to announce the birth of his son. It wasn't to the highest echelons of the priesthood to whom God sent messengers. God sent messengers to announce the birth of his son to shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now, this ought to strike us as the utmost incongruity the Lord of all is received by the Lords of nothing. Now, this is the part of the Advent sermon where I remind you that uh, these men, these shepherds, were among the lowliest of Jewish society during those days. Um, they made their living in the dirt. They lived outside of the bounds of civilization. They... Um, they were known in general as liars, cheaters, robbers. If there was a stray sheep, it was just assumed that if, you know, the shepherd's not going to try to find the, the proper owner of the sheep. In fact, they would just say, oh, I guess that's mine. And so they were known as liars. They were known as cheaters. Um, they were known as swindlers and robbers. And all of this meant that their testimony would not be trusted in the court of law. So if I committed, or let's say I, I did not commit a crime, but I was charged with committing a crime, and, the, and a shepherd was the only one who saw what really happened, I'm going to jail. Like, the, there's no hope for me because the shepherd's testimony, even though it could have been totally true, totally accurate, they're swindlers, they're liars, they're robbers, can't be trusted, and therefore we will not put the weight of justice on their testimony. Now, not only all that, but because of their profession, they could not observe the ceremonial laws for cleanness and purity, so they lived their lives in ritual impurity, which meant they were unfit to worship God in the congregation in the temple. So, so they got a lot of stuff going against them here. And to our eyes, there could not be a greater disparity of dignity between Christ who lives forever, who created all things, who will reign forever, and these lying, cheating, dirty, impure shepherds. But part of what this sermon is for to per, is to persuade you that our estimation of dignity in this world is at odds often with God's estimation of dignity. What we think of as high he often calls low. What we think of as rich, God often calls poor. On the other hand, what we see as humble and crude, undignified, God sees as the highest of all. And this, by the way, is what the Apostle Paul calls the foolishness of God. 
the folly of God. And he says, this is in 1 Corinthians, he says that it is by this foolishness, it's by this folly that we are being saved. So that if we can't identify ourselves with the foolishness of God, there's no hope left. Now, I once heard a preacher say that our main problem isn't that the gospel is too high for us, but that the gospel is too low for us. Our problem is not that the gospel flies in the clouds so high that we can't possibly build ourselves up enough morally to grab onto it and be saved. Our problem is that the gospel crawls around in the dirt and we can't bear to stoop so low and get that dirty. And that's what this story is telling us today. And that should wake us up. Because when God searched all the earth to find the people dignified enough to be the first to receive his beloved son, he chose the ceremonially unclean, lying, cheating, thieving shepherds. And when he considered them, he said, you're perfect. Oh, I've got something to tell you. So... Let's look at first what happened when the angelic messengers arrived. So the glory of the Lord appears in the dead of night, and it shines all around them, and it terrifies the shepherds. And it says in verse 9 that they were filled with great fear, or more literally translated, they feared a great fear. Or as the old King James has it, they were sore afraid, which I can't hear without thinking of Linus in, um, what is it, Charlie Brown Christmas um, I'll take it however I can get it. Um, so, so they were, they were, they feared a great fear. And of course they were afraid. This is the president showing up at my doorstep multiplied by a factor of a gajillion. It's a very high number. It's very high. Okay. Um, so the first words from this angel are perhaps the sweetest words a person could ever hear from a messenger from, sent from God. And those words are Fear not. They're terrified. And the words are, fear not. I mean, they could have said, you're right to fear a great fear. You're right to be sore afraid because all it would require is a word from me and I could reduce you to charcoal. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I have good news for you. So what is the good news? Well, in verse 10, he begins, fear not for I behold, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So that's the good news. A savior is born who is Christ the Lord. The consolation of Israel has arrived. He is the one who will save his people from, his sin, from their sins and he is the one by whom the kingdom of God is breaking into the world as we know it. 
He's the one in whom the most significant redemptive movement of God will be accomplished in this world. And that movement begins with you, shepherds, despised of the world. And unto you is born a savior that will be for all the people. So they receive this good news, and according to verse 15, they say, well, let us, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And then it says they went with haste to go find this baby lying in a manger. And notice that the angel simply told them what the good news is. There was no command to go. But while they were not commanded to go, they were compelled to go. They, they heard this news and they, they were afraid and they were told to fear not. And they said, we must see this. We must go. And so they went and they apparently, I, we don't know. We, did they look around? Did they, was, it their, was it their stable? I mean, they were shepherds. I, I mean, who knows? We don't know. But, but they went around looking for Jesus. Now, meanwhile, let, let's shift scenes here. Meanwhile, Mary and Joseph are in the cave which is probably where people kept their animals back then, probably where uh, they would have been. Um, and they, they were looking upon their child. Now let's get inside this moment for just a minute. As far as we know, angels did not break open the sky and start announcing good news to Mary and Joseph. As far as we know, this was a very normal, average, ordinary birth. As far as we know, there was the normal amount of pain, there was the normal amount of anguish, and there was the normal amount of joy once the child was born. And then that ordinary baby was wrapped in ordinary swaddling cloths, nursed from his mother, and was laid to t into a manger to take an ordinary nap. And if I'm, if I'm Joseph, or if I'm Mary, if I try to get inside their heads for a moment, I, I have to imagine, I don't know if this is true, we don't have scripture on this, but, but I have to imagine maybe just the slightest bit of disappointment. You know? I, they did have an angelic announcement, but it was nine months previous to this. So the angel came and said, Mary, you are highly favored. You have a child by the Holy Spirit. And she treasured up all these things in her heart. And then the angel came to Joseph and says, don't divorce her. It's from, this child is from the Spirit. Name him Jesus. And as far as we know, for the next nine months, there's no more angelic activity with Mary and Joseph. And so they're left to wonder as, as her belly grows larger and larger. They're left to wonder, what will he be like? What will he do? Will he come out of the womb with proverbs and psalms pouring forth from his mouth? Will he walk right away? Will he sing? Will, will he float a little bit above the ground? Will there be a radiance that follows him everywhere? What, what will he be like? And then he's born and he's just normal. He's crying and they're tired. And he's just normal. He's not floating. Now, 
Maybe it was at this moment of doubt, if such a moment existed, that these shepherds burst in and say, you'll never believe this. We have got great news for you. And when they saw it, verse 17, when they saw it, they made known to them the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And I hope that you're feeling the very same thing that the people who heard this were feeling, namely, next verse, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now, before we get into the wonder, let's not let this profound irony pass us by. The shepherds whose testimony could not be trusted in a court of law were made into the first testifiers of the good news of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most important testimony in the history of the world, and God said, I trust you with this. Wow. And all who heard it wondered. Now, wonder is equal parts surprise and admiration. Take surprise, take admiration, Put them into a pot, you got a stew going. It's, a wonder, it's wonder. Um, and um, it's part surprise because um, you, it, wonder is a natural reaction to seeing something or experiencing something that is astonishingly beautiful. So you've got the surprise part of it, you've got the admiration part of it. Wonder is part surprise because the person is shocked that such a beautiful thing exists. And wonder is part admiration because the beauty of the thing makes the person ascribe worth to it. Not only that, but beauty makes us, I mean, you know this, beauty makes us not only want to admire it, with beauty, we want to pass into it. We want to be part of it. We want to consume it or at least have it consume us or else we're left longing and unsatisfied. And that's wonder. That's wonder. And don't you feel it at this story? Don't you feel it that God chose these men to testify, to receive him, those who had no dignity to receive the one who had infinite dignity? Isn't there something about the folly of God that is so magnificent that the only credentials you need to receive the Savior is that you have no credentials? That the only dignity that you must have to enter the kingdom of God is that you have no dignity? But again, our problem is not that the gospel is too high for us, but that the gospel is too low. And so the story of Christ's birth and the announcement of these poor, bewildered shepherds is an invitation to us, dear people of God. Remember that the angel said, I have good news, which will be, he said to you, shepherds, but it will be for all the people, including us. And the good news is that Christ was born, a savior for your sins and for mine. But this savior was born in a cave, laid in a manger, parented by poor parents, the people who received him first, who first announced his arrival, were the marginalized and the discarded. And he invites us into this wonder to be astonished at the foolishness of God's redemptive plan, to be astonished at its beauty, but also to pass into it. 
and to be consumed by it. So, what are we to make of this story? In order, to be, in order to be a recipient of this Savior's redemptive work, we must first humble ourselves and bend low. In uh, James's letter, chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's the aim of all kinds of wonder, not least this wonder, which is to be humbled. So to those who are wealthy and powerful, which frankly for most of us sitting in this room, many of us sitting in this room, is us because we're American citizens and we live in what is perhaps one of, if not the most powerful nations in the world um, and wealthiest nations in the world. So to the wealthy and to the powerful, our invitation is to humility. Our astonishment at this story, if it exists, our astonishment is actually misplaced. We tend to say things like, isn't the gospel marvelous? Because it reaches down even to people like shepherds. But from the perspective of heaven, nobody's surprised. The, the angels who were sent there were not surprised that they were being sent to shepherds because it is the poor, it is the marginalized, it is the discarded, it is the grieving, it is the sorrowful, it is those people in this world who understand that they need a savior. They're under no illusion that life is going well. It's the rich, it's the powerful that are under the illusion that all things are well. Or they ought to be well anyway. And so it wasn't a surprise to the angels, I'm guessing, that they were sent to shepherds. What should astonish us is that anybody like us could be saved. That's amazing. Didn't Jesus say that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Didn't Jesus say in the Gospel of Matthew, as he was talking to the religious folks, in fact, the chief priest, he said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. And, and by the way, what, lest I pass over this without remembering to say it, um, after, after Jesus announced that it was hard for, very, very difficult for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven, his disciples were astonished and they said, well, who then can be saved? And he said, well, with God, all things are possible. So, so it, we're not without hope, okay? But it is astonishing. He, with God, all things are possible. He applied that to rich people. He applied that to powerful people. Whoa, can you believe these people got in? That's what this story is teaching us. Now, um, now I'm glad that you guys showed something on Nepal and the work that we're doing there. Um, because, my goodness, uh, the American church, it seems, spends so much money traveling to poor nations and offering solutions 
that we have conceived for, the pro- for their problems, which we have also conceived, because that's the posture that we're most comfortable in, the posture of power and the posture of solving problems. And, and when from the perspective of heaven, impoverished nations are not merely the recipients of our charity. If we were to understand what's going on here with the shepherds, if we were to understand what Jesus is doing in the season of Advent and inviting us into humility, maybe we would spend all our money traveling to these impoverished nations, not to solve their problems, but to sit at their feet and say, will you teach us what it means to have faith? (laughs) because, because Because Jesus said it's going to be very hard for us. Do I offend? (laughs) Um, Then you must know it is not my offense. This is the offense of the gospel. Our problem isn't that the gospel is too high for us. It is that the gospel is too low. Now, what does this story have to say to our dear brothers and sisters who are in suffering, sorrow, grief, Well, it says that you are highly favored. That your father looks down on you with a special fondness. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And you must know that the promise of Christ's birth is that whatever you're experiencing right now will not always be so. It will not. If tears have been your food this season, then you must know that there is coming a day that Christ will wipe away every tear. You must understand that Christ was born. He lived. He died. He was resurrected to exalt people like you. And you may find yourself in this life never passing out of the country of grief and sorrow, and poverty, and distress. You may find that that's the case. But just as the gospel was announced to lowly shepherds, I have good news for you. There is coming a day when Jesus himself will return. He will tear open the skies. He will descend upon this earth, and he will bring you into his everlasting kingdom out of the bitter country of your despair, and he will prepare a feast for you and all his people, and in that day it is written, he will wipe away every tear from your face, and there will be no more sorrow. All of your grief, all of your pain will be just a memory. Then that day, you and all of us will raise our glass and say cheers to the folly of God. Hurrah for his foolishness. And I can imagine someone objecting and saying, how can you say that God favors some but not others? Well, I didn't say that exactly, but what if he does? What if he does? We know Jesus chose 12 out of 120, and he chose 120 out of the whole crowd. He chose 12 to be near to him and to follow him through his life's uh, most difficult seasons, but he even chose three out of the 12 to accompany him on uh, things that nobody else got to, like the transfiguration. Um, 
does that offend? Well, that's, that's the attitude that the story of this shepherd, of these shepherds, is seeking to deconstruct. Humble yourselves. You see, I'm pretty convinced. I, I'm pretty convinced that we won't see those shepherds in heaven. But don't misunderstand me. I'm pretty sure we won't see those shepherds in heaven because they will be so close to the throne and we so far away that we simply won't be able to see. Now, the story of these shepherds invites the exalted to humble themselves and the humble to hope in their exaltation. The only way that we can do this is to join with these shepherds in gazing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior. We must see him divesting himself of his glory, pouring out his power so completely as to be born of two folks who didn't even have enough money to offer the normal tribute in the temple to celebrate their son's birth. We have to see Christ the Lord who ought to have been sleeping upon sheets of silk in a palace of gold, sleeping in the feeding trough of farm animals. We have to see Christ the Lord, who should have been received with glad tidings in his lifetime, mocked because he was the son of Mary. We have to see Christ the Lord, who ought to have sat in a judgment seat to judge all the world, sitting in judgment before a Roman governor. We have to see Christ the Lord who should have been putting his enemies under his feet, having his beard torn out, no-named soldiers hawking insults at him and spitting in his face. And we have to see Christ the Lord, worker of miracles, friend of sinners, son of God, under the law, blameless. We have to see him to whom no greater dignity is owed, stripped of his clothes, and in the greatest indignity imaginable, having his naked body fastened to a piece of wood by nails, where he was to hang until he died. And if you find yourself seeing this and saying, how foolish of God to carry out his redemptive movement, his redemptive work in such a weak-looking salvation. Doesn't God know that to attract successful people, the movers and the shakers, he has to show how his salvation works, how it looks good in this world? Well, if that's you, then no amount of persuasion on my part will be able to get in. The offense of the gospel instead has revealed the hardness of heart that refuses to humble, to humble itself. A refusal to stoop to the level of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, if what you see here is beautiful, and you, like all who heard this message of the shepherds, find yourself in wonder, then I have good news for you. It is, um, God's will is not merely for you to see this beauty from the outside. His will is that you would, be pa- is that you would pass into it and that you would be consumed by it. In fact, when, when a person believes in Jesus Christ, 
repents of their sins, flees the wrath to come, and says, stoops down into the dirt, which itself is a gift, and they find Christ beautiful, the good news is that he, he pours out his spirit within you. His, the beauty of the whole thing passes into you and passes into me, and we are inhabited by the Lord Jesus himself. Um, so finally, um, I've been reading a book uh, by G.K. Chesterton called The Everlasting Man. And in this book, he says, there is no story. There's no other story like the story of Bethlehem. He says, you can go to Confucius. You can go to the Buddha. You could go to Allah. And you will never find a story quite like Bethlehem that feels, when you hear it, so much like coming home. Do you feel that? So let us come home together as we come to the table. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, as we come to the table, um, not only are we to be humble as the shepherds were, but we are to take up the good news as the shepherds did and announce it to the world. And if you were to ask what keeps a worldwide movement that has spanned centuries and knows no national boundaries, if you were to ask what keeps that going, because obviously it must take an enormous amount of organization, an enormous amount of resources to, to mobilize all these people to go to all the nations and announce the kingdom of God? I'm afraid not. God keeps his whole project of announcing this kingdom, the good news of the forgiveness of sins in his son by feeding his people with this. Can you even see it? This is it. How foolish. You put these two things together, I bet you barely have like five calories. But it's, but it's not the bread and it's not the cup that nourishes us. It's Christ who has set this table for us who nourishes us. It is when we, is when we eat this bread and drink this cup in faith, believing that our sins are forgiven in his atoning work, it is in that moment that he delivers the grace that is required for us both to humble ourselves and to go out announcing that there is good news in this world. And so, my brothers and sisters, as you come to this table, please understand that we come here as a family. We come here to lift our glasses as we have come home with each other to toast the foolishness of God and to smile and sing songs about it. If you see the foolishness of God and you're repulsed by it, then, then don't come and toast with us. Just sit where you are. And, and 
And if you feel a pull, if, you, if, if there's something, you, it, it's like seeing beauty, but from, the, from, the cor- from around the corner, you, you want to get there, but you can't get there. Good news, that too is a gift. That too is a sign that God is at work in you and he wants to deliver the good news to you. So take what you have been given and cultivate it. Sit in your seat. It, believe. Ask him for the faith to believe. Will he not give that? Let us pray. Our Father, we are um, very grateful for the way that you handle us. We think ourselves smart. We think ourselves wise. We think ourselves Um, powerful, but you have turned our notions on their heads. And so we pray that you would grant us the kind of faith that rises to the faith of these shepherds. We pray that you would grant us the humility that can come to this table and simply be glad that there is a Savior born into the world and that even people like us may come to this table and may toast. So we love you. You know this. And we give you thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, you are welcome.